More from Peter Singer's The Most Good You Can Do. Chapter 2 of Movement Emerges. Effective altruism is an offspring with many parents. I can claim to be one of them because in 1972, when I was a junior lecturer at University College Oxford, I wrote an article called Famine, Affluence, and Morality, in which I argued that, given the great suffering that occurs during famines and similar disasters, we ought to give large portions of our income to disaster relief funds. How much? There was no logical stopping place, I suggested, until we reach the point of marginal utility, that is, the point at which by giving more, one would cause oneself and one's family to lose as much as the recipients of one's aid would gain. Over the next 40 years, 40-plus uh, years, the, ne- the essay has been widely reprinted and used by professors around the world to challenge their students' beliefs that they are living ethically. Here's the rub. Even though I argue that this is what we ought to do, I did not do it myself. When I wrote the article, my wife and I were giving away about 10% of our modest income. She was working as a high school teacher, earning a little more than I was. uh, That percentage increased over the years. We are now giving away about one-third of what we earn and aiming to get to half, but it still isn't anywhere near the point of marginal utility. One of the things that made it psychologically difficult to increase our giving was that for many years we were giving away a bigger slice of our income than anyone we knew. No one, not even the mega-rich, seemed to be giving a higher proportion. Then, in 2004, the New Yorker published a profile of Zell Kravinsky. Kravinsky had given almost his entire $45 million real estate fortune to charity. He did put some money into trust funds for his wife and children, but the children were attending public schools, and he and his family were living on about $60,000 a year. He still did not think he had done enough to help others, so he arranged with a nearby hospital to donate a kidney to a stranger. The article linked my then 32-year-old essay to Kravinsky's way of thinking and quoted him as saying, It seems to me crystal clear that I should be giving all my money away and donating all of my time and energy. By this time I was teaching at Princeton, not far from where Kravinsky lived, so I invited him to speak at one of my classes, something he has done regularly ever since. Kravinsky is a brilliant man. He has one doctorate in education and another on the poetry of John Milton. He taught at the University of Pennsylvania before turning from academic life to real estate investment. So he is at home in the university environment. Despite his interest in poetry, he puts his altruism in mathematical terms. Quoting scientific studies that show the risk of dying as a result of making a kidney donation to be only one in 4,000, He says that not making the donation would have meant he valued his life 4,000 times more than that of a stranger, a valuation he finds totally unjustified. He even told Ian Parker, the author of his New Yorker profile, that the reason many people don't understand his desire to donate a kidney is that they don't understand math. Around the time I was reading about Kravinsky, I became aware of the work of Abhijit Banerjee and uh, Esther Duflo professors of economics at MIT, who founded the Poverty Action Lab to carry out social experiments by which they meant empirical research to discover which 
interventions against poverty work and which do not. Without such evidence, Duflo points out, we are fighting poverty the way uh, medieval doctors fought illness by applying leeches. Banerjee and Duflo uh, pioneered the application of randomized controlled trials, the golden standard of the pharmaceutical industry, to specific aid projects. By 2010, researchers associated with the Poverty Action Lab, now known as the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, or JPAL, had carried out 240 experiments in 40 countries. Dean Carlin, once a student of Banerjee and Duflo and now himself a professor of economics at Yale, started Innovations for Poverty Action, a nonprofit organization to bridge the gap between academic research and the practical side of development. Innovations for Poverty Action has grown to a staff of uh to have a staff of 900 and a budget of $25 million, and the idea of randomized trials is clearly catching on. In 2006, Holden Karnofsky and Ellie Hasenfeld were in their mid-twenties working for a hedge fund in Connecticut and earning far more than they had any desire to spend. Together with some of their colleagues, they talked about giving significant amounts to charity. But to which charity? The Poverty Action Lab and Innovations for Poverty Action evaluate specific interventions, such as distributing bed nets to protect people against malaria, but not the charitable organizations themselves, most of which have several programs. Karnofsky, Hassenfeld, and their colleagues were used to analyzing large amount of data in order to find sound investments. They contact... Uh, they contacted several charities and asked them what a donation would accomplish. They got lots of glossy brochures which with pictures of smiling children, but no data that told them what the charities were achieving and at what cost. Calling the charities and explaining what they wanted to know got them no further. One charity told them that the information they were seeking was confidential. Karnofsky and Hassenfeld sensed a vacuum that needed to be filled. With financial support from their colleagues, they set up GiveWell, an organization that has taken the evaluation of charities to a new level. They soon found they could not run, in, run it part-time and so left the hedge fund, a move that cut their income by more than half. Their assumption is that if enough people follow the recommendations on GiveWell's website, the charities will realize that it is in their interest to be transparent and to demonstrate their effectiveness. GiveWell estimates that in 2013, more than $17 million went to its top-ranked charities as a result of those rankings. Although that is not enough to have a major impact on the charitable field as a whole, the figure has risen sharply each year since GiveWell has launched. GiveWell's existence has been critical to the development of the effective altruism movement. Now, when skeptics ask... How do I know that my donation will really help people in need? There's a good reply. If you give to one of GiveWell's top-rated charities, you can be confident that your donation will do good and be highly cost-effective. Around the time Karnofsky and Hassenfeld were setting up GiveWell, Toby Ord was studying philosophy at the University of Oxford. 
As an undergraduate, Ord, an Australian, had initially studied computer science and mathematics at the University of Melbourne, but he often got into arguments about ethical and political issues. When he expressed his views about poverty, his friends would retort, if you believe that, why don't you just give most of your money to people starving in Africa? His friends thought that this conclusion was absurd, but Toby asked himself, if my money could help others more than it helps me, then why not? Ord's growing interest in ethics led him to do a second undergraduate degree in philosophy. He did so well that he got a scholarship to Oxford, where he wrote a doctoral thesis on how we should decide what to do. He remained interested in practical ethics and read my article, Famine, Affluence, and Morality. He began to think seriously about what he could do for people in extreme poverty. At the time, he was living quite comfortably on his graduate student scholarship, which paid him £14,000 a year, a sum that put him, he noticed, in the richest 4% of the uh, world's people, even after adjusting for how much further money goes in developing countries. When he graduated, he would be earning more. He decided to calculate how much he would be able to give away over his lifetime. After meeting his own needs, assuming he earned a standard academic salary, his earnings, he estimated, might come to $1.5 million or 2.5, uh, sorry, 1.5 million pounds or 2.5 million US dollars in 2005 dollars. And of this, he thought he could donate two-thirds, that is, one million pounds or 1.7 million U.S. dollars. Then he asked himself what the sum would achieve if it were donated to the most effective charities. He estimated that, while maintaining an attractive quality of life, he could donate enough to cure 80,000 people of blindness or to save around 50,000 years of healthy life. In other words, his donations would achieve the equivalent of saving the lives of 1,000 children, each of whom would live another 50 years in good health, or of enabling 5,000 people to live an extra 10 healthy years. Such, healthy, uh, such benefits so dramatically outweighed the small sacrifice Ord imagined he would be making that he committed himself to living on 20,000 pounds per annum adjusted for inflation and equivalent to uh, 34,000 U.S. dollars and giving away the rest. His wife, Bernadette Young, a physician, pledged to give away everything above 25,000 pounds. Ord subsequently lowered his own allowance to 18,000 pounds as he found that 20,000 was more than he needed to live comfortably and even take a holiday in France or Italy. Ord wanted to share his knowledge of how easy it is to make a huge positive difference to the world. In 2009, he and Will uh, McAskill, another Oxford philosophy graduate student, founded Giving What We Can, an international society dedicated to eliminating poverty in the developing world. Members pledged to give at least 10% of their income to whatever they think it will do uh, wherever they think it will do the most to relieve suffering in the developing world. At the time of writing, 644 people have taken the pledge, and giving what we can estimates that if all the donors do what they have pledged to do, $309 million will go to the most effective charities.
In addition to helping Ord launch Giving What We Can, McAskill had an idea for another organization. Students and other young people get plenty of career advice, but none of it is directed toward the question an effective altruist would ask. What career will enable me to do the most good over my lifetime? In 2011, McAskill and five friends founded 80,000 Hours, so named because that is roughly the number of hours people spend working in their careers. 80,000 Hours does research on which careers do the most good, offers free career coaching, and is building a global community of people seeking to change the world for the better. Curious about the careers 80,000 Hours recommends? Wait for chapters 4 and 5. The term effective altruism was born when giving what we can and 80,000 hours decided to apply for charitable status under a common umbrella organization. The umbrella organization needed a name after tossing around some names, including High Impact Alliance and Evidence-Based Charity Association. The group took a vote and Center for Effective Altruism was the clear winner. Effective altruism soon caught on and became the term for the entire movement. While these developments were taking place, I continued to write about our obligations to help people in great need. In 1999 and 2006, I published essays in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. The response to the second article was so positive that I developed it into a book, The Life You Can Save, which appeared in 2009. In the final chapter, I suggested... A progressive scale of giving, like a tax scale, where the amount you give increases as your income increases. As compared with giving what you can's flat 10% pledge, my suggestion is for a lower level of giving for an average income earners, but a higher one for those with high incomes. Agata Sagan, a Polish researcher and supporter of the ideas in the book, set up a website so that people can pledge online to meet the level of donation suggested for their income. So far, more than 17,000 people have taken this pledge. Gradually, the website evolved into an organization, which really took off when I got an email from Charlie Bresler. Charlie and his wife, Diana Schott, are representative of those who, nearing the age when people traditionally retired from paid employment, are thinking about what they want to do with the next 10, 20, or even 30 years of useful life they may still have left. As students in the 60s, Charlie and Diana have been active in the movement against the war in Vietnam and for a transformation of political life in the United States. When it became apparent that the system was more resistant to reform than they had hoped, Diana became a physician while Charlie earned a a doctorate in psychology. After spending some time as a professor of psychology, he stumbled, his word, into becoming president of Men's Warehouse, a major national clothing change, chain. That increased his income, but in the back of their minds, Charlie and Diana retained the idea that after they had raised their family, they would do something to make the world a better place. Charlie read The Life You Can Save and decided that helping people in extreme poverty would be worthy of his time and energy. He is now the unpaid executive director of The Life You Can Save. In 2013, the first year in which the organization was fully operational, it conservatively estimated that, on a budget of $147,000, it had moved $594,000 to highly effective charities. 
yielding a return on investment of more than 400%.